0: Good morning, especially good morning to those of you who are not in Hawaii right now on a beach like Pastor Matt is uh, (laughs) suffering for Jesus right now, so he and Amber and Zoe need your prayers while they are basking in the Hawaiian sun, so please remember to pray for them until they get back. We are going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. We're going to be finishing up the 10th chapter of Mark today. Throughout this Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus do a lot of wonderful things, a lot of healing miracles, a lot of people following him, um, drawing a large crowd. And so there's a lot of things within Scripture that if we just kind of take it at first glance and don't really look into it, we kind of miss the point that's being made by Mark in this book. And so that's what's going to happen today. Uh, It's going to cover another healing miracle and it's the eighth specific healing miracle in the Gospel of Mark. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, it talks about Jesus went into towns and healed peoples and, um, you know, rid people of demons. But there are eight specific healing miracles in the book of Mark, and today we're going to be talking about the eighth one. So Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now, at first glance, if we just read over that, we can leave thinking, you know what? This whole passage is just about Jesus healing another blind guy. But there's so, so much more to this passage than that. That's honestly not even the main focus of this passage. Um, and I'm going, to show you, I'm going to show you why, right? As, as people of this church, we want to be students of Scripture. We want to study God's Word. We want to see what it says and how it applies to our lives. So in order to see how this one is different, I'm going to briefly recap the seven previous healing miracles and see what the difference was with all those compared to this one. The first one in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, Jesus heals a man with leprosy by touching him. During this time, if you had leprosy, in Jewish law and Jewish custom, you were considered unclean, you were not allowed in the temple. And anyone that made contact with a person with leprosy was also, by association, not allowed in the temple. And so Jesus, showing that all these rules are being changed, that he's flipping everything upside down on his head, Jesus touches this man with leprosy and heals him. That's extremely significant. In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus heals a paralyzed man and says to him, your sins are forgiven. The reason why that's a big deal is because in Jewish law and custom at this time, the only person that had the authority to forgive sins was God. So for that that miracle, Jesus is saying, you know what? I am on par with God. I have the authority to forgive sins. Again, another big proclamation with that healing. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Jewish custom, Jewish law said that you do no work on the Sabbath. In fact, they had 300 plus rules of things you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Again, Jesus shows it's not about your rule keeping, it's about me. In Mark chapter 5, 21 through 43, there are actually two healing miracles. The first one is a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touches Jesus' garment, and she's healed. Again, during that time, if this woman had been bleeding, she's not allowed in the temple. She hasn't been allowed in the temple for 12 years. She touches Jesus' garment, she's healed. Through that association, again, Jesus technically wouldn't have been allowed in the temple either. But again, he's showing what the heart of what he's trying to get at is. It's not about rules. Later on in that same chapter, Jesus raises a little girl from the dead grabs her by the hand, and says, get up. And she gets up. In Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, Jesus heals a deaf and mute man by putting his fingers in the man's ears, spitting, and then touching the man's tongue. Right? That's an interesting way to do that. In Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, Jesus healed a blind man by spitting on his eyes and then putting his hands on his eyes. So again, there are crazy, incredible things going on with every healing miracle in the book of Mark, except for this one. This one, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the guy says, I I want to see. Jesus says, all right, cool, boom, you can see. There's no big proclamation. There's no spitting in his eyes, right? There's no, no touch of any kind. So that's telling us just from that, based on the way that Mark writes this gospel, there has to be a different meaning behind this passage. or Not different, but there has to be more to it than just the physical healing. So let's dig in and see what that's telling us. So we start off in verse 46, a blind man, Bartimaeus. Why was the blind man begging by the roadside? When we think about this, during the first century, if you were blind, if you were disabled in any way, you could not have an occupation that paid you. The only, thing, the only way that you could make money was if you sat on the side of the road and begged people for money. That was the only way you had to do anything. And so the scripture tells us they came to Jericho. Jericho was a visit, very busy area. At this point, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he's about to be crucified. Jericho's very busy. Lots of people would be passing by. So that would, that would actually be a natural place for a blind man to be begging. And in Jewish custom and law, it was considered righteous to help out someone who was blind, someone who was begging by the road, to be able to give them money. So all this was within Jewish law and within Jewish custom. In Leviticus uh, chapter 19, when God's giving instructions to the Israelites, to Moses, of ways that they should live, of things they should do, he even says in verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. So they were kind of protected by law, right? Being blind, being being disabled, they were still protected by law. Also during this time, the majority of people were illiterate, especially blind people. There There was no Braille system, right? There was right now, there's an organization, National Foundation for the Blind, and their goal is to help acclimate those who are blind into everyday life and what's the best way they can do that. During the first century, that was not an option. Those things didn't happen. No one was looking out for them. They were just like the song we just sang. They were poor. And they were powerless. They had nothing, nothing that they could give, nothing that could be gained. And so what they had to do was go off what was read in the Torah. Again, Jewish custom, Jewish law. They read the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, and that was Jewish law. That's how they based how they lived, and that's how they based their relationship with God. And so everything they knew would have come from that. But what's amazing, even though they were protected by Jewish law, economically, socially, they had nothing. We see the crowd rebukes this man, right? This is a a group of people who are following Jesus on the road, and the man cries out for mercy, and they basically tell him to shut up. Listen, Jesus has better things to do. You can't help Jesus' agenda. Please stop annoying us and stop wasting our time. That's how they're treating this man, that he's not worth Jesus stopping for. What's amazing is that this this takes place 2,000 years ago. But I think it's so obvious in our society today, we don't make time for people who cannot benefit us in some way. The people who our society considers less than and not worthy of our time, we still don't stop for. We still consider them more of a problem to be dealt with than a way to serve God. 2,000 years and we're still on that spot. But even after he's rebuked, I love the way the blind man responds. do right? responds with desperation. He's not going to shut up. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I tell him, stop, stop talking. You're, you are embarrassing us. We're trying to follow Jesus. But he says it even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. And so as we read this, our mind should instantly fill up with questions. The first one being, if you're not familiar with Scripture at all, why did he call Jesus the Son of David? Even if this is your first time in a church building, you've probably heard the Christmas story, and you're thinking, you know what? I'm pretty sure that Jesus belongs to Mary and Joseph. I don't know why you would call him Son of David. What's the point of that? The point of that is by referring to him as the Son of David, the blind man is saying, I believe Jesus to be the coming Messiah who is going to rescue the Israelites and bring healing and wholeness. That's what he's saying by this. And this comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, where God's talking to the prophet Nathan to give this message to David who was a king at the time. And he tells David, "When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you." your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Then it finishes up in verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Obviously, he's not talking about David there, because David has died. So he's talking about the son of David, who's going to come and who's going to reign forever. That's the coming Messiah. And the blind man, Bartimaeus, by saying son of David, he's saying, I believe, Jesus, I believe that you are that man. I believe that you are the coming Messiah who's come to bring healing and who's come to bring wholeness. Now, when he says, have mercy on me, think about this, right? A big crowd, Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd, could be hundreds, could be thousands, we don't know. But how does one blind man stop Jesus in his tracks? Right? There's got to be people all around Jesus talking to him, trying to have conversation, trying to get answers. And this blind man says, son of David, have mercy on me. Why are the words have mercy on me so important that Jesus would stop? Why is that so important? Because when we cry out for mercy, essentially what we're asking for is compassion. You only ask for compassion from people who have a higher standing over you. Because otherwise you don't need it. The man recognizes his humility. He recognizes his humbleness. And in order to ask for compassion, you have to have a stance of humility. You have to understand that you are not the top dog, that you are not the one giving something, but you are the one in need of something. This blind man understands that. He has this understanding that he cannot help himself. The same thing with us and our salvation. We can't do anything to save ourselves. It is all through the work of Christ. I remember in, uh, in seminary, I read this article, and it said, uh, these guys went out and asked this question, what is your favorite Bible verse? And so it gave the top five responses. And one of the responses was, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> you should be laughing. And the reason why is because that's not in the Bible. There's nowhere in Scripture the verses God helps those who help themselves. It's nowhere in there. Because God doesn't help us as we help ourselves because we cannot help ourselves. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn God's love, there's nothing you and I can do to earn salvation. He doesn't help us because we help ourselves, He helps us because we cannot help ourselves. He saw our great need. He saw us in our sin, understanding that there was no way that we could get past that. There was nothing we could do to cancel out that debt that we owed Christ. And yet God sent Jesus for us. The blind man understood that when he, said, when he says the words, have mercy on me, he's not saying, listen, Jesus, I've had a rough life, man. Help me out. Throw me a bone here. He's not saying, you know what, Jesus, I've worked hard every day to try and get this money by begging, you owe me something. That never once comes from him. He cried out, Jesus, have mercy on me because he knew he was powerless and he knew he needed Jesus. There's a wonderful quote by Tim Keller, uh, who is my, my personally my favorite pastor in the world. He's a pastor in New York City. And he says this, we'll put the quote up on the screen. If you want God's grace, All you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster, especially in today's time, when we're taught to think that that we're good enough, that we are out living for ourselves and that we've got what it takes. And So we come to God saying, look at all I've done, or maybe look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him, just to look to him. There's nothing, there's nothing that you can say to Jesus that puts him in your debt. We want to do that. We want to say, Jesus, you owe me this. I'm a good person. My kids stay out of trouble. You owe me something. And the crowd's reaction, again, is just, is just mind-blowing. The crowd rebukes him. These are people following Jesus. This is the type of person who Jesus has come to rescue, who he has come to help. Earlier in chapter 10, a few weeks ago, Pastor Matt preached on this. There was another time when Jesus' followers rebuked a group of people. Children. Children were poor and powerless. This blind man was poor and powerless. These people rejected and rebuked those who were in most in need of Jesus and told them, basically, you're not worth Jesus' time. You're not worth his time. But the man responds even louder. He responds in a way that desperate people do, right? When we're desperate for something, we're going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. He understands his need for Jesus. He understands his desperation. So he's going to shout even louder. He's not about to let anybody stop him from getting in touch with Jesus. Because he can't do anything. He's blind. He's sitting by the road begging. All he can do is cry out Jesus' name and and beg for mercy. In verse 49, If we read this correctly, this should be one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture for us. Verse 49. Let's read the beginning of it. Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. He's surrounded by hundreds, maybe thousands of people, all who want his attention, and he hears the cry of a poor and powerless blind beggar on the side of the road. Why? Why? Jesus, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he is going to be crucified. There's probably a lot already on his mind, right? This, isn't, this is not going to further Jesus' cause. If we're thinking from the way his followers are thinking, Jesus, why are we going to stop and worry about this guy who can't even do anything for you? Listen, we're, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going forward. Let's keep moving. But Jesus stops. Last week, Pastor Matt spoke about Jesus came to serve, not to be served. It was in Jesus' nature to stop. That's what he does. That's the reason we're saying the poor and the powerless. That's who Jesus stops for when we recognize that that's who we are. In comparison with him, that's who we are. We are poor and we are powerless. Jesus does not view the blind man as an annoying problem to be dealt with. He doesn't look at him and say, oh, man, this is really just a pain, but I guess I'll have to deal with this guy. No one is insignificant in the eyes of Jesus because there's no such thing as people that don't matter to him. No such thing. Everyone who has ever lived on this earth through the history of time, no one is insignificant to Jesus, and everyone matters to him. That's why he stops for the one blind man. That's why he has offered salvation through his death and resurrection to me and to you because he sees us. Because he hears us, we're not insignificant. This should bring us so much joy and so much comfort to know that even in this situation, everything else was calling to take Jesus' attention away from this man. But he stopped. He stopped. Please, if you're in a situation where you just feel so completely alone, because we've all been there, we either feel like that Jesus doesn't see us, or if he does see us, he doesn't care. That's what we tell ourselves. Please look at this story to understand that you are seen and you are heard by Jesus. No matter what's happening around you, no matter what's happening inside you, no matter your amount of pain, your amount of desperation, your helplessness, he sees all of that. And he doesn't tell the blind man, he doesn't say, hey, get up and stop begging and and then I'll take care of you. The same thing with us. Jesus doesn't say, listen, leave your pain, leave your desperation Leave your helplessness and everything is going to be perfect. Because that's, that's not reality. And he knows that. But he does let us know that he is the only answer to that pain. He's the only answer to our desperation. It doesn't mean that those things go away. But it does mean that Christ walks alongside us during those times. And that, again, should bring us comfort. That should bring us joy. Let's look at Verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. How many of us would love if Jesus asked us that right now? Jesus just came down and said, Hey, what do you want me to do for you today? Right? So don't answer out loud, but think in your head, what would you say? If Jesus came right now and stood face to face with you and said, what do you want me to do for you? What would your answer be? Because last week... If we look at verse 36 that Pastor Matt preached on last week, two of his disciples approached him and said, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And their response was that they wanted fame, they wanted glory, they wanted power, they wanted to be alongside Jesus. They wanted to be seen as being alongside Jesus. They're basically saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah the Messiah that has come to make me famous. That's what they're getting at. Jesus, I want you to make much of who I am. I want to be glorified. I want, you to, I want you to use what you have to make a big deal out of me. That's what the disciples are saying. The blind man sees Jesus as the Messiah who has come to bring healing. He doesn't ask for wealth, although he's obviously poor. He's been begging by the road. He doesn't ask for success. He doesn't ask for every bad thing in his life to go away. He simply asks just to see. Rabbi, I want to see. Now, here's why the response to that question is so different and why our response to that question matters greatly. The way that the disciples responded was to give them glory so that they could be glorified so that everyone would see them as a big deal. The blind man's response, Rabbi, I want to see. If Jesus grants that request, who gets glorified? Jesus does. Because if you think of a blind man who can now see, no one's going to go up to him and say, that was amazing. How did you give yourself sight? That's fantastic. Why didn't you do that 30 years ago? Right? Everybody's going to say, how can you now see? How how are your eyes now open? And his response will be, Jesus. Jesus did this for me. Why? Because I asked him for mercy and he gave me mercy. He gave mercy so this man can see. In that situation, God gets glorified. Jesus gets glorified in that. That's why Jesus answered this man's request as opposed to the disciples. The disciples were seeking their glory. The blind man knew that Jesus would be glorified through this. We live in this world now where we have conferences, we have books, we have speeches, and a lot of times this idea of what is my purpose in life. Everybody's trying to figure out their purpose. Our purpose in life is to glorify God from birth to death. That is my purpose in life and that is your purpose in life. That is why we were created, to glorify God. Not to get a position, not to get a lot of money, not to have as much fun on this earth as we can and then forget about it we were created to glorify God, every single one of us. And here's how amazing Jesus is. When we glorify him, that's when our life is most complete. That is when we are most like who God created us to be. This man is healed as he's glorifying God. As he's given glory to Jesus, this man is healed. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing to think that we are not incredibly deeply loved by a God who says, glorify me, right? Which we, which we have a tendency to think first, that seems kind of selfish. Why does God need to be glorified? Well, for, for any human, that is extremely selfish. But think about what is the one thing that is best for us? More of God. So if God is selfish and gives us more of himself, that's where we want to be. That is why God needs to be glorified. That is why we get our greatest joy our greatest uh, sense that we are loved and that we are accepted because of Christ as we glorify him. In verse 52, let's look at the beginning of verse 52. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Now we need to be clear, again, what this is talking about. He does not say, listen, the amount of faith you have was so strong that I'm going to heal you because the level of faith is never what heals, right? It's always the object of our faith. Let's take this, let's take this stool, right? If I am 20% sure that this stool is, I mean, it's old and and looks like some of the pieces are falling off, but if I'm 20% sure this is going to hold me, or if I'm 90% sure this is going to hold me, does that change whether or not this will actually hold me? No, it doesn't. The stool. Let's, okay, whew, good. It helped me. It doesn't matter if I have a lot of faith or a little faith in this stool. It was the stool that helped me up. It's the same thing with Jesus. Your level of faith and my level of faith is not what saves us. It's Jesus that saves us. That's why the blind man knew this. That's why Jesus says your faith has healed you. It wasn't that, oh, because I have enough faith, that that I'm now going to be able to see. His faith was that Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus healed him. His faith in Jesus is what mattered. Now here's where we have a tendency to misunderstand some of this passage. Please, as we read this and as you hear me talk, do not think that this is saying that everyone who has a problem, who also has faith, is going to be healed. That's not That's not what this says. That's not what this says. It's not saying just because you have faith that you're going to be healed, that everything's going to be okay. That promise is never made. The actual healing is not even the main point of this passage. So we can get lost in the weeds when we ask questions like, why does Jesus heal some people and not heal others? Here's the answer to that question. Nobody knows. No, we don't know. That's not talked about in Scripture. God chose not to reveal that to us for his own reason, we don't know. And I say that to you not as someone who's just trying to skip over things, okay? If you've heard me speak before, I've talked about my mom died from cancer when she was 46. She was a believer. She had faith. I've gone through every one of the why questions that you can think of. She had enough faith. Why why did she die? Why are other people, why do they get to live? Everything like that, everything that that you wrap your mind around, God, I need to know why, I need to know why. I have asked all of those questions, so I don't say this as just I'm sweeping it to the side. I want to say this as somebody who has asked that question themselves. And here's what I've come to. Even if God could come down and tell me right now what the reason was, that wouldn't matter. That pain would still be there. That loss would still be there. So then, What I have to realize, the question I now have to answer is, do I trust God? Do I trust God that he knows what he's doing? Do I trust God that how my mom's life ended up, that he was in control of that? That God was still sovereign even in those moments? That's the question I have to answer. We can get bogged down thinking about questions like that that we don't have a clear answer to. But the answer is, do we, the question is, do we trust God? Do you trust God with your life? Now, for each of us, how we answer the question, what do you want me to do for you? That's what this passage is about. This passage is about discipleship, right? When we think about that question, what do you want me to do for you? This is either going to reveal if we want to be healed from our spiritual blindness, like Bartimaeus, or if we want to use Jesus To do our bidding and to serve us and to glorify us in some way. To fulfill our own desires. How do we answer that question? Every one of us, every single one of us enters this world spiritually blind. There are no exceptions. Every single one of us. And somewhere along the way, you hear that question in your heart. Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? Our best answer... It's Jesus I want to see. I want to see. And if you are a person in this room who has already placed your faith in Jesus, then the story of the blind man makes perfect sense. Because if you have, you've realized that you were helpless. You've realized you needed grace. You've realized that you were desperate for help, crying out for grace and mercy. Because that's the only way Jesus has done that. Not because we deserved it, but because he has mercy and he gives us grace. And only when we recognize that can we have that saving faith. So our eyes have been opened to see Jesus for who he is and see who we are in response to that. But also, I want to talk right now to those of you who who are Christians, who are believers. Though our eyes have been opened, we, we have blind spots. We have blind spots that keep us from following Jesus the way we were intended to. What is your blind spot? Right? Is it finances? Right, Jesus, I would be more generous with my money and do things that further your kingdom, but I mean, I really need to hit Tahoe four times this year instead of just three, so I'm going I'm to keep that. Is it a relationship or something that worked that you know you shouldn't be involved in? Listen, Jesus, I would follow you completely, but really like this girl. I get that she doesn't love you, but you know, I mean, she's here, you're not, I don't don't know what to do. And this one I said, this one from my heart, for me personally, when those of us that have kids or if you have grandkids, we think surely that can be a blind spot for us. Yes, it can. And here's why I say that. Is our number one goal for our children and grandchildren, what's our number one goal? Is the most important thing for them to be successful in life? To make good money? To have a nice car? To have a good house? Or is our number one aim when raising and parenting children, is it for them to be followers of Jesus? Because how you answer that question determines everything that happens within your house. Grandparents, when your kids come to your house, what is your thing? That they know that you're the greatest person in the world? Trust me, they already know that as a grandparent, you are the greatest person in the world. They already know that. Or is your time spent teaching them how to become followers of Jesus. What is your number one goal? There's nothing wrong with our kids growing up and being successful and doing the right thing. But if that is our number one aim, then whenever we hit that fork in the road, we are going to lean towards the side that gets them to be successful as opposed to the side that has them following Jesus. What are we going to do? Those are blind spots for us. We need to find the blind spot in our own lives so that we can fully go ahead following Jesus. And now if, if you are here and you have never placed your faith in Jesus, you are walking around spiritually blind. That's, that's just a reality, okay? Whether or not you see it, that's reality. And Jesus is asking you that question, even today, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? If, if your answer involves that you want to see, please come find me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. But let's think about where our hearts are. Let's look at the second part of verse 52. This this, this is the point of this passage. Immediately, the second part of verse 52, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. When he received his sight, he followed Jesus. We already talked about Jesus was on the road to the cross. Jesus was on the road to the cross. When the man's eyes were open, he didn't go and have conversations with people. What do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? This guy opened my eyes. I don't know. I'm kind of, you know, kind of got a weird thing going on. But he immediately followed Jesus. The reason being is that faith that does not lead to following Jesus is not saving faith. You can have faith that Jesus exists, but if your faith and what Jesus has done for you does not result in you following him, then that faith does not save you. That's just the reality. That's the reality of it. We're about to go into a time of communion. And the one thing I I, I want you to think about as we do this during this time of communion, we're going to sing the song, Amazing Grace. The first verse, this is just such a, a, a picture of what we've read about today. Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me again that's that recognizing who we are in light of who God is i once was lost but now i'm found was blind but now i see let's pray heavenly father God, as we sit here before you today, wrestling with how we would answer that question, do we want to be able to see what you see, or do we want to further ourselves, to glorify ourselves, to make much of us? God, I pray for the people in this room who are not believers. Lord, I pray, God, that you will show them their spiritual blindness, Lord, and also show them, God, that you are the one that can give them sight, that you can give grace and mercy. Lord, you see us as we are poor and as we are powerless and as we can contribute nothing to you. You see us and love us and offer that grace and mercy. For those of us who are already believers, Lord, I pray that you will expose our blind spots so that we can cast them aside and we can run that race following you all the way to the cross. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you'll continue to move in our lives. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.